do something again, and it's a little bit scary for you, and it's not something I normally do, so if you're new here, um, you can just ask people. I've kind of lost my mind a little bit recently. So what I want you to do this morning is I want you just to stand up right where you're at. Stand up. Okay? Everybody just stand up. Because I really believe that what God's Word has to say to us comes from an invitation on our behalf. And so what I want you to do, now this is going to be really scary for some of you. I want you to just put your arms out like this. Now some of you are going to go like this, and then there's the others of you that are kind of like Baptists. You're going to go like this. Right down here. Don't want to get too crazy or anything like that. But you just, so basically what I'm asking you is just open your hands. You can put them down here. You can put them up here. You can put them up here high like this. And now we're just going to ask this. We're going to say, and you repeat after me, Father, Father send, your spirit send your spirit to open my heart, to, open my heart to, receive your word. to receive your word. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're on the road to glory with Jesus. We started off three weeks ago, and we uh, kind of went into the upper room where Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples. And then we made a quick trip out of the upper room down to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. And we remember um, one of the big key points out of that is what the religious leaders and the government officials thought that they were taking Jesus into captivity, that they were absolutely in control of the whole situation. It was actually Jesus who was in control of them, and they had no clue about it. They were pawns in his hands, and what he did is he just simply stepped up, and he said, I'm going to allow you to take me. Because if I didn't want to go, there is nothing that could make me go. I could call 10,000 angels down and absolutely destroy you. I could speak a word and destroy you. That's what Jesus could have done. But he stepped into it because he's on this road to glorify the Father in everything that he does. And so this morning as we start to step into it, we're looking at Jesus' glory. He's on the road to glory. Now, here's the funny thing is sometimes when we think about glory, we have maybe a different concept or idea or thought about what glory looks like. Sometimes we think of it more like a rock star, someone who has... Thousands of people who line up uh, to get a glimpse of the person or to talk with them or to get a high five or to get a photo with them. Then they'll spend an enormous amount of money to, to uh, give three or four hours of their time away. They spend money to go and give their time away to listen to this person. And sometimes they're comedians and they're speakers or they're musicians or whatever. And so they have this rock star status and they bask in the glory of being a rock star. Jesus was not a rock star. Jesus became the spectacle for the religious leaders and the government officials. And, and what they thought that they were doing is that they were going to bring Jesus in because they were absolutely 100% jealous of his popularity because, well, after all, he is God and God's pretty popular among his people. And so here's Jesus doing all these things. And here's what happened is that, that they, when they took him, they turned him into a spectacle where adoration for Jesus should have been, they exchanged it for mockery. Where he should have been honored, it was substituted for disdain. Jesus had become the exhibition for those who were jealous and resentful. 
And they had a desire for control and power over the people that they were serving and ruling over. So they, they think they've taken Jesus into custody. They have him under his control. Under, they have him under their control. They're going to bring the desired outcome of what they have for Jesus. And that ultimately is to put him to death and get rid of him so that he's no longer uh, an issue within the life and the culture of, of the Jews and with the Romans, as it were. And so Jesus is in complete control of the situation. He has allowed the events to unfold as they have, and it is all for the express purpose that he will finish the work that the Father gave him, and that work will bring glory to the Father. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up Jesus' trip down Glory Road in John chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 28 through 30 30 to begin with. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, I've made a pretty big jump from when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane till now because a lot has happened. Right here where we're reading, Jesus is actually hanging on the cross. He's suffering. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of bring you up to speed in what has transpired. And and I'm sure that a lot of you who have read through the Gospels probably have an understanding of the path that Jesus took because he was before Pilate and um, the, the religious leaders, and they were yelling for him to be crucified, but they, they, they mocked him as the king of the Jews. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They whipped him severely, and, and he had this, this torture that went on before he even got to the cross to be crucified. And the crucifixion, the whole purpose of a crucifixion was ultimate pain and suffering. It was torture in itself. And so what Jesus endured uh, before he even got to the cross is absolutely mind-boggling because there's, there's this whole thing that's going on. There was this, this gruesome, inflicted suffering that Jesus took upon himself that the other criminals did not take upon themselves. The other two guys that are going to be crucified with Jesus, they were beaten... But what happened is they just took a cane, a beating stick. They tied them up and they beat their backs a little bit, bruised them up pretty good, maybe bruised their kidneys, uh, maybe ruptured a bit of a spleen or something. But it wasn't like what Jesus endured. Jesus had a, a whip that had either bone or metal shards on the end. And there were three strands. And every time it would hit his back and they would pull it back, those Shards would grab the flesh on his back and it would rip the flesh off of the bones. That was enough to kill most men. To take a beating like that. Plus they have this crown of thorns that they slapped on their on his head. They just didn't put it on there. They beat it on his head. And you know, one of the things as I was reading and studying about this is that What happens when you have that kind of a pressure from those kind of thorns on your head is it creates 
a, and I can't remember what the medical terminology is, but there's a terminology that talks about what it does is it creates this burning sensation through the nerves in your head that come down into your face. And so your face feels like it's on fire. It feels like down here, the, the, the thorns are up here, but down here it feels like your face is being stabbed with a needle and it's on fire. So this is what Jesus has endured before he even gets up on Golgotha, Skull Mountain, where he's going to be crucified. He was in such bad shape that he couldn't even carry his own cross up the hill. They had to get a guy to carry it up there for him because Jesus couldn't make it. And so we get Jesus up on the hill. And then they take him and the soldiers. What they do is they take him, they lay you down on this crossbar. And they take these nails, these big old spikes, and they put it through the palm of your hand. And I was reading by one doctor who said that the palm of the hand is the most sensitive place on your entire hand. The two most sensitive places that you're going to experience pain are in your hands and in your feet. And where did they drive these nails? In the hands and in the feet. And then they hoist Jesus up on the cross. Sometimes we have this mental picture of Jesus at the crucifixion that he is perfectly composed through this whole thing. Like, he's got it under control. He's calm. He's peaceful. He's riding above everything that's happening. You might even hear people that say that the spiritual pain was worse than the physical pain because God isn't really bothered by physical pain. But I, I want to tell you, that's not the case at all. He didn't ascend above the pain Jesus wasn't okay at the cross. He wasn't in a good place mentally. He was in such extreme emotional anguish that his body began sweating blood. He wasn't in a good place physically. He was tortured and went through severe pain. He didn't let go and act as if the cross didn't bother him. He cried aloud. He admitted that it hurt. Jesus didn't ascend above the pain. But he also didn't avoid the pain. The Gospel of Mark records that a a, a, a soldier offered Jesus an anesthetic drink that would help dull dull some of the pain, but Jesus refused. And we know that even up to the very last moment, it was within Jesus' power to come down off of the cross. He could have called the angels at that very moment. Last moment. He could have avoided the pain. He could have made the choice in the garden of Gethsemane not to face it. But he made the choice not only to face it, but to step into it. Now, if I were writing the script. Because we want Jesus to be the hero. And in our human thinking, what happens is the hero is is about ready to die. It's the 11th minute. Or the 11th hour with the 59th minute of life left. And all of a sudden the hero somehow comes back. Swoops off the cross. Pulls up the sword. And slaughters all the soldiers. And he makes his way down to the temple. And he takes care of Caiaphas the high priest. And all the other religious leaders and the Pharisees that would have done it. If I would have written it. Jesus right when we would would have thought Jesus was taking his last breath. He breathes in. And all of a sudden this bright white brilliant light comes streaming out of his mouth and his eyes and his hands are on fire so much so that it melts the nails right off of his hands. He slips off of the 
off of the cross and he looks around and he's bigger than life and his muscles are bulging and he is about ready to take charge. That's the way I would have written it. (laughs) But that is not the way it happened. So what I want to do is I want to take us to to the uh, Gospel of Matthew and look at what he records took place there. We're going to start with verse 45 of chapter 27. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out uh, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there can be a little bit of confusion because when we talk about the timing here where it says about the sixth hour, we can imagine that what it's talking about is being at 6 o'clock in the morning. And of course, uh, if you get up at 6 o'clock in the morning right now, it's dark. And, and in the wintertime, it's dark. And so we're imagining, well, we, we kind of say to ourselves, well, of course, it's going to be dark out at 6 o'clock. But the sixth hour refers to noon, high noon. And that's when the sun is at its full zenith. It's at, at the apex of, of, you know, its movement with the earth. And so it's in broad daylight that we have all of this taking place here. And, it, and at high noon, when the sun is at its zenith, at its brightest time of the day, Matthew says that the sun goes into hiding and hides its face. It goes completely dark. It's not like just an eclipse, you know, we're going to have an eclipse here this coming summer. How long is that eclipse going to last? Does anybody know? About three minutes, two minutes and some odd seconds. You know, about three minutes. We're talking about the sun disappearing and absolutely being dark like night for three hours in the middle of the day. So you can try and twist this to say scientifically it was an eclipse. But I don't know that there's ever been an eclipse that lasted for three hours. That's ludicrous to kind of think that way. And and if you go back and we remember back at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, it was it's talking about the creation of the world. And it says that God created a a ruling sun for the daylight and the moon for the nighttime. The sun ruled the day. The moon rules the night. God created it. And he said it was good. So what we need to know is that Jesus is the one that spoke the sun into existence. He has authority over the sun because he created it. We know that Jesus has authority over nature Because if you remember back into the Gospels when Jesus was with his disciples, there's one time he was so exhausted from doing ministry. He was so worn out from preaching and teaching and healing people that he got into the boat. He laid down in the bottom of the boat with a a little pillow for his head. And the disciples, who were fishermen, went across the Sea of Galilee. And halfway through the trip, this storm kicks up that is so violent that it's about ready to sink the ship. And the fishermen that have grown up on this lake are afraid they're going to die. And so they say, Master, don't you care that we die? And Jesus gets up and he commands the winds and the waves to be still. And it goes dead calm. Freaks the disciples out a little bit because now 
This is one of those first things where Jesus has control over nature. We also know that Jesus had control over nature because when, when, he, when the disciples went across after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walked out to them on the water. And there was a storm and the waves were crashing around him. And once again, Jesus not only walks on water, he commands the water to hold him up. He gets in the boat and he calms the storm again. So Jesus has absolute control over nature because nature is subject to the creator. The created is subject to the creator. And so here we have at high noon, the, the sun in all of its brilliance and all of its brightness. And, and the son of God, the creator, is being nailed to the cross. And the son cannot bear to watch the wickedness and evil of mankind. and What they're doing to the son's creator so as it were, the sun hid his face from the wickedness. This is a witness to God's judgment, like the plague of darkness that fell on the land of Egypt. And it's also a witness of God's mourning over the great evil of his son's suffering. And there are those who would say maybe it's just a coincidence that everything went dark at that time and that the Son of God being nailed to the cross uh, and it goes dark is just something that kind of, well, you, you know, it just happened. You, you can't control stuff like that. But God told, foretold this moment 750 years earlier when the prophet Amos wrote this about this very moment that would take place in history. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, and it says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and the darkness and darkness the earth, darken the earth in broad daylight. 750 years before Jesus is crucified, God's telling all of Israel, here's what you're going to know about that day when you guys kill God's son. Everything's going to go dark for three hours at at broad daylight, at noon, the sun is going to hide his face and it is going to be dark. Darkness is a supernatural sign that something colossal is happening in history. The world's outer darkness corresponds to Jesus' inner darkness. And after three hours of darkness, there is a cry that is heard all the way into heaven. And it's this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's the response? Silence. Not a peep from God. Nothing. In Jesus' greatest hour of need, when He is in most need of the Father's comfort, of the Father's love, of the Father's reassurance, what is it? It's silence. And it's nothing. There's nothing there. And... and at this time of day, at 3 o'clock, this is really significant. Because this is the Passover. And so there's a lot of activity going on at the temple. And at the temple, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, is when they would bring the lamb into the, the altar to be sacrificed. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus dies, they're, they're in the temple, they're about ready to sacrifice the lamb for the forgiveness of sin. And here we have it. We have just within eyeshot, you can see over there to Golgotha, Skull Mountain. From the temple, you can see the, the mountain where Jesus was crucified. 
And on the cross, dying at that moment, is the Lamb of God. They're, they're sacrificing this Lamb in here, but what they don't realize is that over on the mountain is the Lamb of God are being offered as a sacrifice of all sacrifices to end all sacrifices. This is no ordinary sacrifice. It's the Son of God doing what no other sacrifice could do, and that is to totally and 100% appease God. It's to remove sin and make all who receive this sacrifice on their behalf justified and righteous. I want you to hear this. Jesus didn't just do, uh, do enough to fulfill the requirements of the law. He did more than enough to fulfill it. As we read through these verses, we have this connecting point with Jesus. I think every person in this room has a connecting point with Jesus at some time or another in their life. And we're connected with him on that word forsaken. Because there are times in our life when we call out to God, when we're in desperate need, we need God's help. We need God to come in and do healing. We need God to help us with our finances. We need God to rescue our marriage. We need God to give us wisdom with our children. And we cry out to God and all we hear is, Silence. There's no response. And we feel as though maybe God went on vacation and forgot to tell us. We feel as maybe God has forgotten completely about who we are and what's happening. Maybe God's not aware of my circumstances. And we feel forsaken by God. But here's the difference between us feeling forsaken by God and when Jesus cried out and said, What? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't talking about a feeling that he had. He was talking about the reality of his life at that moment. The darkness of the day, the darkness of Jesus Christ, the darkness of being alone is the reality of being forsaken. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul summarizes this moment on the cross. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize what Paul summarized. Does that make sense? Here's how I'll summarize this. God made sinless Jesus to be sin so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Let me say that again. God made sinless Jesus to be sin so that we might be forgiven of our sin. The theory fits the verses in Matthew that teach that Jesus' death was the atonement for sins. Jesus saved his people from their sins by giving his life as a ransom for many, by pouring out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has been silent much throughout this whole ordeal with him. He hasn't said a lot in chapter 27. Just like when he was before the religious leaders and the government officials, they were questioning him. He was silent as a lamb is silent before its shearers. And so... All of a sudden, here in verse 50, we hear from Jesus again. And it says in verse 50, And he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The words yield up his spirit portrays Jesus as once again sovereign over his sufferings. It's as if in full obedience, the son, the very moment his heart is to either rupture or his lungs asphyxiate or lose too much blood to live, whatever the physical ailment is that finally did him in, hands his father his last 
breath as a gift. He's absolutely in control. He is not going to let death take it from him. He's going to give it away to the Father. Before Jesus dies, we hear his last cry. And Matthew doesn't say a whole lot about it. So we're going to go back to John. And Jesus' last cry found in verse 30 of chapter 19. And here's what it says. And he, that is Jesus, said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This should be read as the divine victory proclamation. Jesus dies a victor with a shout of triumph on his lips. The Son of God's final moment is His most human one, or to put it in a very unorthodox way, God dies like a man. His last breath, the last thing He says, is it is finished. You remember that that He continually talked about doing the work that His Father had given Him to do. I am here to do the will of my Father. I am going to finish the work that my Father laid before me. And as I finish the work that my Father laid before me, I am going to glorify Him by bringing it to completion, by finishing the task, by finishing the job description that He gave me to do while I was here on earth. And so when Jesus cries out with a loud voice, it is finished, it really is finished. He's completed everything. Everything's done. And he has done what God has called him to do. And so whatever the mysterious meaning of Jesus' final cry, there is no mystery as to what happened after that cry. Because God answers Jesus' prayer. Why have I forsaken you? Here's why. And God gives the world three supernatural signs to reveal the mystery of the meaning of his son's death. After Jesus gives up his spirit, the spirit of God goes to work on the world. Heaven showers down its signs of vindication and victory. The justification of God outshouts the voice of scorn and confusion. The father has not abandoned his righteous suffering son, and he gives him an earth-shaking, tomb-breaking, curtain-tearing ceremony of celebration. He unmistakably affirms that Jesus sacrifice was accepted. And that's what we're going to find as we look at verses 51 through 53. And I want you to hear and see and feel the divine, the divine fireworks that were set off by Jesus' death. Here's what it says. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The first thing that Matthew points out is is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this really is a miracle and a supernatural work of God. Because it's, it's significant. Now... Unless you've gone back and you've really studied the Old Testament and you've studied specifically the temple, there are maybe some things you don't know because it talks about the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. There are actually two, two curtains in the temple. Do we have anybody here of Jewish descent among us? No? Okay. So we're all in the same boat. We're all a bunch of... Uh, dirty, rotten Gentiles. Amen? So as Gentiles in the Old Testament, 
when we walk up to go and worship God at the temple, we walk up and we can offer our sacrifices, our grain offerings. We can do all that stuff in the outer court. But as you look up, right there is this this 80-foot tall curtain stretching across. And if you are a Gentile, you are not allowed to go on the other side of that curtain. That is left. That side of the curtain is for Jews, God's chosen people only. So you can't go back there. You can't see what they're doing. You can't hang out with your Jewish buddies. Isaac and Jacob are back there. You can't go with them. You've got to stay out here because your name is Luke. So you're waiting. You do your stuff. They go behind the curtain, and you can hear them laughing and giggling and just having a great old time, and you're kind of like, gosh, wished I could go back there, but you can't because you're a Gentile. So that curtain separates the outer court of the Gentiles from the outer court of the Jews. Then when you walk into the sanctuary, into the holy place of God, there at the very back of that room, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, is another curtain. And that is the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holy places. And the holy of holy places is the dwelling place of God. When God set up the temple and designed the temple, he put this room back there, and it's, it's 15 feet, and it's 15 feet, and it's 15 feet. I mean, it's this room where God resides. He, his presence is behind that curtain. Now, that curtain, I already told you, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. I had to go back and do some research on it because I couldn't quite remember um, how thick the curtain was. At the minimum, it was four inches thick. That tapestry woven together, it took 300 priests to place it where it was supposed to hang. It took 300 men to put it on the pole, to lift it up, to be able to get it up there and hang it where it was supposed to go. So here we have this big old thick curtain. But what happens in our passage today with Matthew is he doesn't identify exactly which curtain it is that, that is torn from top to bottom. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I'm going to tell you why I think that is the case. My thoughts are that the curtain, it was the curtain in the sanctuary separating the holy place from the holies of holies. And here's why I take this place where I land. When God established the, the holy of holies, where he dwelt, he also placed into that room what is called the mercy seat of God, where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, after he went through all of his ceremonial stuff to make sure that he was absolutely right before God, there was no sin of deceit or anything found in him that was sinful. After he went through all the cleansing, all the purification, all of the confession of sin, all the stuff that he did, then he took a bowl of blood with him for one time, for this one specific purpose, to go behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, where God resides, and to take the blood of a lamb and to sprinkle it on the holy seat, on the mercy seat of God for the forgiveness of sins. That's, he does that one time in his entire life, usually because the high priest changes every year. If there were sin found in his life and he went behind there and, and in the presence of God and there was sin that he hadn't dealt with, he would be dead. That's why they tied a rope onto his ankle. Because if you didn't have a rope on his ankle, then somebody's going to like it. 
hey, Isaiah's back there and he's dead. I heard him hit the floor. We haven't heard anything. You go get him. I'm not going to go get him. You go get him. Let's get Jacob. He's not very smart. We'll send him back there to get him. So they tie a rope onto his ankle so they can drag him out because you don't want to go into the Holy of Holies. You don't want to go into the presence of God because there's, if there's one, one little smidgen of unconfessed, unforgiven sin in your life, you're a dead man. When the, when the priest went back there, the high priest went back there to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of God, he took this little incense container and he was swinging it back and forth and the room back there, the Holy of Holies was filling up with the incense of God because you could not look at God and survive. And so it created the smoke. So there was a barrier, even yet another barrier, a small one to protect you from the very presence of God gazing at you. And so when, when Jesus took his last, last breath and he said, it is finished. And the curtain in that big, heavy, thick veil or curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, separating the holies of holies. The significance behind that is that God is saying that there needs to be no more blood spilt. There is no more sacrifices that have to be made because it is finished. The last sacrifice of all sacrifices, the perfect sacrifice of my son, has released us from that and God is no longer there. It gives us two truths about this veil in the temple about being um, split. First is judgment, meaning that it's all over. And the second is salvation, meaning that it's all open. The moment after Jesus breathes his last breath, the temple in Jerusalem becomes a desolate house. God's no longer there. He's not hanging out there anymore because it's all done. And once the true high priest had at length appeared and the true Lamb of God had been slain, the true mercy seat was at length revealed. There is no more need of an earthly high priest, a mercy seat, the sprinkling of blood, an offering of incense, and a day of atonement. Jesus' death brings final judgment to the temple, and it's all over. Three decades later, after Jesus died, the Romans were absolutely fed up with the Jews and all of their shenanigans. And they went in there and they absolutely tore Jerusalem up. And they totally took the temple and, and flattened it. There was no more veil standing. There was no more nothing going on. There were no altars. There wasn't even a stone left to flip over. They destroyed the whole thing three decades later. But God had already vacated that temple when Jesus died. While one door is closing on Jesus' death, another one opens. Now through Jesus and Him alone, the whole world is invited into the presence of God. It's all open. Both the demanding restrictions on access to God and the distinction between Jew and Gentile have been abolished. And it's as it says in Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He brings us in now. We're into that place because, because of Jesus, Jew and Gentile, clergy and laity, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free can obtain 
direct access to God by faith. You don't have to have anybody go and talk to God on your behalf anymore. You go directly into the throne room of God. And that's what it says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what Jesus procured for us. That's the access that he's given to us. And here's the twist in Jesus' death on the cross that no one saw coming. Because of his momentary separation of, from the Father, why have you forsaken me? The world now has been granted through faith in Jesus eternal access to God, our Father who art in heaven. This is the lesson of the supernatural splitting of the veil. We have access. It is all finished. The second sign that God provides for us with this eye-opening earthly response right before and after Jesus' death is this. Before he dies, the earth turns black. After Jesus dies, the earth shakes. And the earth is telling earthlings that something seismic is happening. The sun hides its face. The earth shakes its feet to teach us to see and hear that a new earthly era has dawned in the death of Christ. The crescendo of the earth-shattering signs, however, is not the ground shaking or the rocks breaking. Rather, it is the tombs opening and real resurrected human beings walking about Jerusalem. That is the third supernatural sign. It says in verse 53, And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I don't know where, where people get their crazy ideas but there is this cult following of the walking dead. Right? You might think that they got it right out of the Bible. Wait a minute. The tombs opened up and these dead people went up and walked through the city of Jerusalem. The walking dead, right? No! It's the walking alive. They're not dead. They're not half dead. They are fully alive. And that's that's like, you got to be kidding me. Now, I want you to notice that that actual event happens after Jesus' resurrection, not after his death. Yet Matthew places it right here to open our eyes to the resurrection power of Jesus' death. The holy ones in the holy city, after the holiest event in the whole, his, whole of history, makes it wholly awesome. Matthew believes that the resurrection of the body. He believes in that resurrection. And he can't wait till Easter to tell us about it. Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The dead are revived by his dying. As he passes from life to death, they pass from death unto life. They're meeting each other on the way. And they're giving Jesus a high five as they go by. Now, there's obviously a lot of questions we have about these folks, about these people that were resurrected from the dead when Jesus died. How many were there? Were there 10 or were there 10,000? What were they like after they came out of the grave? Did they, 
Did they go back to being young or were they resurrected back to the age of which they died? Here's a question. Was Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, one of those that was resurrected? Maybe John the Baptist, he was beheaded. Maybe he was resurrected. Who knows? Maybe it was even King David who came back to life. And nobody recognized him. But you have to admit that this is the craziest thing that would ever happen. Because here are all these people that were dead. And we don't know how long that any of them have been dead. We don't know anything about that. But here we have these dead people who after Jesus is resurrected, they're going like, hey, let's don't hang around in this dead place anymore. Let's go into town and get something to eat. And so they go into the holy city. And they're walking through town and everybody's going like, whoa, Uncle Bob. We just buried you last week. I know. Jesus, God, came back to life. And when he died, I got life. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. And it's like, wow. You know, and it's just all this crazy stuff going on. Because what Jesus did is absolutely unbelievable. But what happens here is is Matthew fails to satisfy our curiosity. And he does so because there's only one point he wants us to know. He does not so much want us to know everything we can know about these people, but the one significant thing about Jesus. The significant something is captured in a sermon title of a late, great Puritan preacher named John Owen. And here's the title of his message. The death of death in the death of Jesus. Or, in other words, Jesus' death defeats death, or as Augustine nicely phrases it, his death killed death. Not only is Jesus' death strong enough to split the veil of the Holy of Holies, so to cancel sin, it is also strong enough to open the tombs to cancel death. Sin and death are humanity's two greatest problems, and Jesus' death conquers both of them. So when Jesus' last cry, it is finished... It's a cry of glory. And we're the recipients of it. He glorified the Father and the Father glorified Jesus. And because God glorified Jesus, because His sacrifice was acceptable, the Holy of Holies is no longer a place where we go to confess our sin and have our sin taken care of. We go straight to God and we confess our sin to Him and it is immediately forgiven. We don't don't worry about death anymore because death no longer has the last word. Because of Jesus, death is dead. It's just the journey through death that we're not looking forward because we don't know what it's like. But Jesus said it's going to be okay. When Jesus experienced the momentary separation from the Father, why have you forsaken me? We now have God with us forever. In Hebrews, we're given the promise of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Because Jesus was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. In Romans 5, Paul says this. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Because of Jesus' death, your sins will be remembered no more. You have been given continual access to the Father's throne and to His very ear. And death no longer has the final say. And here's where I want to kind of wrap this up in the next 20 seconds. 
We have death all around us all the time. I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about the death of a relationship. We think there are certain relationships that are absolutely dead or they are dying. They're on their way to the grave. The marriage may be dead or dying and it's on the way to the grave. Our children's relationship with our children may be on life support and we don't know what to do about it. Our finances may be so far gone that they're not just dead, but they're buried six feet under and we can't retrieve them. We've got all these things of death all around us. And here's the good news for you. I know the one that is the expert at reviving dead things. And he wants to revive your marriage. He wants to revive your relationship. He wants to bring life back to you. He wants to bring life and vitality back to your soul or your spirit that you may feel is on the verge of dying. He wants to bring vitality and life back into your finances. He wants to bring life to every aspect of your life. But here's the deal about it. He will only go where he's invited to go. He will not step across the line where you will not invite him to, to come into your life and participate with it. That's why this morning I had you stand up and stretch out your arms and say, Father, this morning I want to receive from you what you have through your word, through your spirit. Because when you get that life from God, it will change your life. And so, our hope is found in the death of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is absolutely incomprehensible for us to really think and get our minds wrapped around what you went through. Sometimes it's even hard for us to even think that we were not your primary reason. We were secondary. The glory of the Father was your primary reason for going to the cross. But yet, as you fulfilled everything that your Father asked you to fulfill, sin no longer has a grip. Death is no longer to be feared. You have given us hope. You have given us meaning. You have given us life. And so I pray this morning for your people that as we step into this relationship that you want with us, that we would know that you are waiting for us to want you. You are waiting for us to want you. And so we ask, as you're being patient, that you would put a longing, a desire in our hearts to want more of you. And I know that what we ask It will line up with your will, and you will do it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.